1: Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT's Culture Podcast. I'm Al.
2: And I'm Grizz. And this week we'll be asking, can you buy good taste?
1: And what is the naughtiest thing you've ever done?
2: But before that, I'll be talking to the Indian writer Amit Chowdhury about his novel, Friend of My Youth.
1: Please join us at facebook.com forward slash everything else podcast and chat with us about Amit Chowdhury, good taste, or just tell us the naughtiest thing you've ever done and we'll read them out next week.
2: Hi Al, how are you doing? I'm very well. And what have you been doing since we last chatted in the studio?
1: I've been making cider.
2: It's that time of year?
1: Well, exactly. It's not my own cider. I went to the first cidery in London to do that, but that's very exciting. And I made a little video of it, which we can see at some point. Oh, so this is a plug? (laughs)
2: Well,
1: it's not a complete plug.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's just half a plug.
1: Yeah. At some point, when it comes out, I'll mention it again on the podcast. (laughs) But it's the the season, isn't it, to be making cider. We should be, I think at the moment, everyone should be making cider and drinking it.
2: I can get on board with that. Have you been doing anything else or just making cider?
1: No, I haven't only been making cider. I've been gardening.
2: Oh, how delightful! Uh, I
1: have a I have a very a really small overgrown garden, and I think it's the time of year to try and tidy it before before winter. I've I've been out there, and would while, you say you're green fingered? No, no, I'm not remotely green fingered, but I I quite like it. I mean, I quite like doing it every two or three months for a couple of hours. Um, <laughs> and sounds well maintained. No, it's fine. It's fine, except for my neighbour's cat, which is called Mitten. Is the size of a of a quite large pig, um, <laughs> and Mitten is black and white and was originally a wild Hackney cat. And I stroked Mitten last year <laughs> because Mitten was snuggling up to my leg, and Mitten bit me to the bone. <gasps> um, God. Yeah, and, and it, Mitten is the terror of of Hackney, and I and I sort of I screamed in this really high pitched way <laughs> as Mitten uh, bit me. And all summer, Mitten seems to have disappeared, and I thought that maybe Mitten had passed on to another world. Mm-hmm. Um, but Is Mitten uh, quite old? Well, he's so big that he looks sort of immobile, while other cats, like, climb walls. Mitten, Mitten just walks through walls, <laughs> and so I had thought that maybe Mitten had died, but he hasn't. He, he's out there, and he's watching me gardening, and he still snuggles, but he doesn't.
2: But you keep your distance
1: but i don't i don't dare touch his head or anything like that. So, very wholesome week, cider, wholesome week. cider, cider and gardening. What have you been up to?
3: I wouldn't
2: say my week's been that wholesome. I haven't done an awful lot. It's been quite a nice sort of quiet week. I have actually been reading a book about North Korea, which sounds kind very,
1: of very joyful. Grim.
2: It's called Nothing to Envy: Real Lives in North Korea by Barbara Demick who is a, a journalist who was in, in South Korea and spoke to lots of defectors from North Korea about their lives, about what it's like just living an ordinary or not-to-us-so-ordinary life in North Korea. The book came out in 2010, so it's not it's not a new book. It won the Samuel Johnson Prize. I should say, I was actually made to read it because I'm doing it for my book club, and my heart sank slightly, actually, when I got the email saying this was the book that we would be reading. But it's totally gripping. It's a real page turner. I usually, I have to say, don't really like non-fiction. But this is the kind of oral history. It's like what it's like to live in North Korea. And it's totally fascinating.
1: Is it true that there's nothing to envy?
2: <laughs> there's not a lot to envy. No, I mean, actually, it's, Reading the it's book. brutal. There's there's no electricity. There's very little food. There's no social mobility. It's pretty rubbish if
1: you're a woman. Reading the book, do you think that you would do well in North Korea? <laughs> <laughs> no. Do you not think that Grizz would thrive in North Korea?
2: I feel like this is the loaded question. I don't think I would That's thrive. Not I'm not sure thriving is what happens in North Korea. I think you, I think some people survive, but it's truly brutal. Okay, you But really- I would recommend the book. It's so interesting. I think North Korea is in the news all the time. I feel like I don't really know anything about it. You know, this is quite mysterious. But actually... This is a real way into North Korea. It's just, this is what life is like if you live there.
1: Great. Well, I'm going to read it.
2: <laughs> you should.
1: The other thing we've been reading is Friend of My Youth by Amit Chowdhury, who you spoke to earlier. Why did he want to interview Amit Chowdhury?
2: So Friend of My Youth is his latest book, and I've read a couple of other books that he's written. And Amit Chowdhury is a, a really interesting over the summer, people were talking quite a lot about Indian fiction because it's the it was the 70th anniversary of Independence and Midnight's Children. The Salman Rushdie novel was sort of serialised and there is this great tradition of kind of modern Indian writing. But I think Amit Chowdhury is quite interesting because he's sort of slightly outside of that. He's quite experimental. He doesn't write multi-generational sagas about Indian families and sort of... Um, he's trying to do something quite, quite different. His book, Friend of My Youth, is about a novelist called Amit Chowdhury, very meta, who goes back to Mumbai, where he grew up to give a book reading and kind of signing to promote his new book. And the novel sort of follows this Amit Chowdhury wandering around the city, the, the city of his youth, and, and trying to discover the friend of his youth who could may or may not be there. And it sort of delves in and out of memory and into the past.
1: So is it really a novel or is it... Is it a memoir? Call me stupid, but Amit Chowdhury, writing about Amit Chowdhury, um, <laughs> sounds, sounds like a riddle. I
2: think it, it sort of has elements of that. It's definitely not a memoir and it's not set up to be sort of revealing of his actual life
4: but at, it at a, all. It but a, it's, a, so
2: it's playing with the idea of being
1: true. Is it a novel?
2: Yes, it's, it's a novel, but I think what he does, which is interesting, is he doesn't really follow the conventions of what we think of as a novel and he's kind of just pushing and stretching at those boundaries and so doing something like giving the main character his name and also making him a novelist.
1: Earlier in the summer, we went to a talk by Amit Chowdhury at the British Library and he he rather put me off reading his novel which, right? because he talked about plot and reinventing The novel and doing something completely different, and my heart slightly sank because I believe that plots are important and it certainly plots are here to stay. I believe in stories, so I I approached his novel subsequently with a slight sense of dread. And then I read it, and I completely love it. It's a mini masterpiece. I love his honest, unsparing sort of descriptions more or less of himself and his very precise way of writing, yeah, his weird sort of offbeat unapologetic persona. I think it's a really beautiful book. When he came in here to talk to you, it all sort of started making sense.
2: Falling into place. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it's a great. I mean, it's a slim volume, but it is, like you say, I think a sort of mini, a mini masterpiece. Hilary Mantel has called him a miniaturist, and I think his... His sort of scope is actually quite small in a way. It's taking one day or one moment or one person's life and just sort of going into their, their inner landscape and, and exploring that. You know, nothing objectively big or dramatic happens in the novel. It's sort of quiet moments that, that make up a life.
1: Yes, and make up something sort of universal.
2: And it's quite funny. I mean, it's got a sort of
1: this is really funny dark
2: humour about it. I think there's an interesting comparison to be made with Teju Cole, who we had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. I think ostensibly they're quite sort of similar. They both come from a tradition of modernism. They both like Virginia Woolf and James Joyce. Amit's novel, Odysseus Abroad, from a couple of years ago, it was sort of based on Ulysses a bit. It's over the course of a single day. The protagonist is walking around London in the way that in Ulysses it's Dublin. But I don't know that Teju and Amit are actually that alike. I think there's something quieter and less showy perhaps about Amit Chaudhary. I don't know if you'd agree with that.
1: Yes, I think in the best possible way he is trying to do something slightly more modest than Teju Cole. I think that Amit Chaudri hasn't set out to write the great Indian novel as he said. He's not claiming to some epic scale which perhaps Teju Cole is and he's not politically engaged perhaps in the same way that Teddy Cole is they definitely feel different
2: But there's a real power in his writing he's got there's a real presence on the
1: page Absolutely and I would really really urge people to read
3: his book
2: So Amit Chaudhary, thanks so much for coming in today
3: Thank you it's a pleasure
2: My first question is why would you call the main character in your new novel Amit Chaudhary?
3: I don't know, just that that kind of frisson of giving him the same name as myself. It's happened before. It's possible to do this. And it's happened well before there was anything called postmodernism.
2: So this is not a kind of autobiography.
3: Exactly. I write about a day or two days or moments in which nothing much happens outwardly autobiography, like any conventional history of something or somebody, has to be made up of the important moments in one's life. I'm primarily not interested in telling you about a catalogue of the important moments in my life.
2: Does it frustrate you when people say, oh, nothing happens in your novels?
3: I remember the first person who said this was John Lanchester in a review for, for Vogue magazine, uh, <laughs> of, of all glamorous. places. Very yeah. glamorous. But he pointed out the fact that absolutely nothing, according to him, seems to happen But he was saying this positively. How do you pull this off? What I would be trying to do is communicate the slightly peculiar interest I have in what others might find boring. On the other hand, I find deeply boring what others find interesting, which is often conventional plot. It's a kind of dogma to think that plot is interesting. The things you watch on TV, the movies you watch, which have a very strong plot line, which somehow are memorable and remain interesting do so because there's something in them beyond the plot line while the the ones which have just plot i find a very boring
2: so you don't relax by watching a kind of detective who I relax. Done it series No i do i, I relax So that, that's very plot driven
3: it, it is plot driven i relax being distracted and not actually watching is a part of my experience of of the thing i also often spot the murderer very early on and spot them not because i'm following the plot but because uh, because I've recognised some convention by which the murderer will be slightly unobtrusive and innocent-looking.
2: So a kind of filmic convention. A
3: filmic convention. And then I allow my mind to drift. It's deeply relaxing.
2: And so people now are talking about this thing called auto-fiction, which I guess is is a way of talking about this perceived blurring between autobiography or the kind of lived life and a fictional life. Of course, one of the kind of major proponents of this is Knausgaard, your writings obviously is very different from his although they have been compared and he writes quite sort of openly and explicitly about family and neighbors and things mm. um, whereas i feel in in front of my youth your wife and your daughter were a slightly sort of shadowy mm. presences i have this sense in a way that you're protecting them
3: i'm interested in knaskog's interest in the enigma of arrival he's spoken about that so the vs and v. S., which I, I too am very interested in and which i would say is a kind of path-breaking work in exploring this kind of line between life and writing. He gets read in both a literary way, in a way that's not literary, in the sense that it satisfies some kind of curiosity about what he's saying about his father or some other member of the family.
2: So people are sort of hunting for biographical clues. So so the slightly
3: sensationalising sort of impulse. This is how he wrote about his father. That doesn't interest me.
2: There's a funny passage, a kind of quietly excruciating, I think, passage in the book in which the Amit Chowdhury of the book is being interviewed by a journalist.
3: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: Do you like being interviewed?
3: Oh, that's a difficult question. Again, it's not a question of liking or disliking it. It's a question of being able to bring something to it and not sort of perform the role of the writer. So to go beyond plugging the book, which is a kind of late 20th century phenomenon. I mean, that's when it but, starts. But
2: plugging the book is a huge part of, presumably, of your of your job and it, of the job of the amateur in the book.
3: It, it is, it is. But while you're plugging the book, other things are happening to you. You're thinking about writing, but then other experiences are happening to you as the book explores. In this case, the experience has to do with not being able to access a friend. Staying in a room in a city where one has grown up and looking out onto the building in which one grew up.
2: So in that moment, you're trying to grasp the complexity of being interviewed, of listening to the question, of answering the question, and yet of having all of these other thoughts that kind of train through our minds all the time, every day at once. Other thoughts, in, in that moment.
3: other sensations and sensations which, which bring back memories. There is the smell of food, I think, while while he's being interviewed. But also at one point when he's being photographed, he goes to an area from which he suddenly sees the building in which he grew up. I mean, those things are actually a part of our life.
2: This kind of formal invention is something that you've been doing for, well, really as long as you've been writing. But you've said before that when people talk about Indian writers, they talk about Indian writers writing about India, as opposed to writing in a way that's formally inventive. Is that a frustration for you?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the frustration arises partly because it's related to other frustrations that I've had. And that's to do with the fact that when Indian writing is talked about, it's only Indian writing in English that's talked about. When Indian writing in English is talked about, it's only the Indian novel that's talked about rather than, let's say, Indian poetry or the Indian short story. And when the Indian novel is talked about, it's only the Indian novel after 1981, Midnight's Children, that gets talked about.
2: So Midnight's so, so Children casts this kind of quite long shadow over Yeah, Indian I mean, I, I,
3: I'm sure it makes you see that field in terms of time and space in a very particular narrow way in which the Indian novel only gets talked about in terms of the country from which it emerges, which is India. And it's not just the West, but Indian commentators such as there are or Indian writers who are also guilty of talking about what they're doing only in terms of the country rather than form, aesthetic compulsions or impulses I think the whole business of writing in English gives you a vantage point but also a kind of illusion that or even a burden about having to address all of India or speak always on behalf of India
2: you get sort of put into a box of kind of post-colonial fiction and therefore you're addressing post-colonial themes and, which and, is not true necessarily. Which is not case. true. Yeah. And if
3: you're if you're writing in Urdu or Bengali or, or you don't you cannot be speaking for all of India. You're speaking for your street. That kind of has created in those literatures, as it has in let's say in Irish literature, and other literatures of the world, a greater emphasis on the form, on the aesthetics of what they're doing, in order to be able to make something as unimportant as the street important.
2: Do you ever write not in English?
3: I can't. I mean, I wish I could. I would like to write in another language. But because I grew up in Bombay, which basically means I was born of Bengali speaking parents. And Bengal is in the east, Calcutta. So I can speak Bengali and can read it to a certain extent. But because I never learned it in school, I I don't know it well enough to write in it.
2: So you don't feel in any sense part of a kind of Bengali literary heritage I do I do I do
3: absolutely the Bengali literary heritage ties me to modernism in terms of some of the things we've been talking about preoccupation with form preoccupation with the moment preoccupation with sensation over large concepts like nationality of course Bengalis were nationalists they were great nationalists but when it came to their writing they were exploring other things they were rebelling against linearity Sometimes it's called the Bengal Renaissance, that period. The Bengal Renaissance, though, is deeply against, in some ways, the European Renaissance, in the sense that the European Renaissance is about monuments, huge landmarks. The Bengal Renaissance, I identify with residential buildings, a kind of decay.
2: What was it like to move... To move back to India. You moved back to Calcutta, is that right? From, I moved back to Calcutta. From yeah. England. Yeah,
3: right at the end of the last millennium. Why did you do that? I always wanted to get back. I was on a fellow, a two-year fellowship at Cambridge. And uh, the fellowship came to an end. My daughter was born at around the same time. I thought it's a good time to move back. The other reason was, at that point of time, I was a bit alienated by England. Not for the usual reasons. The more conventional reasons for Being alienated, I've gone through those. I went through those in the early 80s.
2: Some of those are in the book *Odysseus Abroad*. That Uh, sense of alienation, that sense of alienation.
3: You're right. By the end of the 90s, I was feeling alienated because I was feeling. I I felt that Britain was had become so homogenized by globalization. All of a sudden, everywhere looked the same. They all had the same kind of shops. The Labour and Tory parties were exactly alike. I felt I needed to get out.
2: And when you went to India, did you find that kind of homogeneity was absent?
3: It was absent. It was also affected by globalisation, especially Bombay, where I grew up, in a way that I found interesting, although I'm not a fan necessarily of all the consequences of globalisation. Calcutta was left out. It felt kind of stagnant and, and inert.
2: So is Calcutta still a place of, of this kind of strangely beautiful decay, or has that shifted a bit?
3: It's a place of the strangely beautiful decay of the modern, One has to kind of remember remember the paradox. So what, what we're looking at is not the decay of ancient India, but the decay of modern, of a modern city, which always looked like it was decaying. So if you look at the pictures of the city from 100 years ago, it still looks like it's decaying. That decay for it to be a kind of life force needs to be part of a kind of imaginative economy or continuum that has been largely killed off with the destruction of the middle class in Calcutta. It's waiting for a resurrection.
2: You talk about the destruction of the the middle class in Calcutta, Mm. and it strikes me that the middle classes and their kind of moors are something that you... I mean, it's not the subject of your books, but it's people as in your novel, The Immortals. These are sort of quite comfortable, leisured people. Is there something about the middle classes that's particularly of interest
3: to you? I think it's an extraordinary class, especially among the Bengalis. It fascinated me as an out, kind of outsider because uh, I used to go to Calcutta and kind of, st- without even realizing I was studying this class, I was studying it. This is something we don't remember any, anymore. But there was a time when money was not such a big player. I mean, there was enough money, both for the person who didn't own property to the person who owned the property to get by. But the ethos was of a slightly different kind.
2: And that's a, a kind of middle class that has now been lost in somewhere like Calcutta? I
3: think it's lost everywhere. In India? A- everywhere in the world. I mean, we forget that, that it's gone now. Uh, Belsize Park in London might have been a place where a more bohemian kind of crowd lived. Even my parents lived there, not because but they were bohemians, but because they could afford to rent a bed set over there. And now you have to be very, very rich. We've forgotten what it means to have that kind of ease without having... A huge amount of money to back it up. We've also forgotten that there were people who actually followed through in terms of their lives, in terms of doing things, without actually thinking in the way we do now of money defining everything. But money does necessarily define things now. There's a huge difference in atmosphere today between business class and economy class on an aeroplane. It didn't exist when I was growing up. There's a great difference now between the middle class and the rich
2: and this must apply to the life of a writer of a novelist of someone who makes their living through words
3: it makes their living through words and like me i mean i don't even write sort of books which are deeply ext- commercial there's always the question of you know maybe maybe every writer feels that in any epoch but you're out of sync why are you writing these books which are not conventionally are not part of the commercial mainstream What space do you occupy? With the kind of extinction of the middle class, also those other spaces with the extinction of communism, of what lay beyond the Berlin Wall also disappeared. Those other enclaves, those anomalous enclaves, let's say in which truly independent publishers could continue to publish Samuel Beckett's novels like John Calder when he was not well known. Now it seems like a quixotic, utopian kind of time.
2: You've written about this recently with regards to the Booker Prize yeah. and the sort of, that as a sort of capitalist model.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Can you explain why you are so critical of, of the Booker Prize and, and of the way that we are all so sort of enamoured to it?
3: All I'm saying is that let the Booker Prize exist. Let it do what it wants to do. But let there be other spaces. Let there be other ways of defining what's important to a writer. Let not one thing and one way of looking, not only books, but the way we understand what constitutes achievement. Let there not be one way. In writing, everything seems to have been mainstreamed. The The costs of mainstreaming are large in terms of quality, in terms of the freedom with what you can do with your material. We know what it has done to Hollywood. Every year they go through this ritual now of the Oscars. The list of films on that Oscar shortlist and the films that get it are bad films. We watch it because we enjoy masochistically watching the Oscar ceremony. Uh, But but those films are not particularly great films anymore. We know that. I think there's a cost to all of this. I don't want to say this in a kind of ranting way. I think let it exist. Let there be all of that. But let there be other things.
1: Last month, Everything Else had its first ever live podcast at the FT Weekend Festival at Kenwood. I was the chair of a panel asking the question, can you buy good taste?
2: And what did the panel decide? Can you?
1: Well, I don't want, I don't want to give it away, <laughs> but...
2: So what did you go into it thinking?
1: If it exists at all? Instinctively, I think that you can't buy good taste. I think that it's probably innate... Also, I think that people who have good taste almost certainly know they have good taste. But at the same time, people who don't have good taste almost certainly don't know they don't have good taste. So the question of buying it then becomes slightly academic because no one thinks they've got bad taste. So why would you need to buy it?
2: Well, why why do people hire interior designers to do their house? I mean, there must be some insecurity around the idea of taste if you would even do that. Or is that unfair?
1: I think there is an element of insecurity and wanting to keep up with the Joneses. But also, you know, it's a time pressure. People who can afford to hire very expensive designers possibly don't have much time to design their own homes.
2: But what do you get if you pay for a designer?
1: I think in most cases, if you're paying for a top designer, you get a very specific vision. They will all say that, no, no, we we, we talk to the client. and We um, give them you know, what they want. We give them exactly, you know, we, we sit down and we, we, we investigate exactly what the client wants. But it is remarkable how recognisable, say, a Kelly Hoppen house is to another Kelly Hoppen house. Or I think you could definitely tell a Nicky Haslam apartment from an Aladad apartment. And and obviously, clients will go to these designers knowing what to expect. And they'll share their taste to some extent. Yes, and so obviously, it it is a discussion. Inevitably, if you're going to an elite designer, you must like what they do. And so that almost certainly you'll be led by them. I always ask these designers, do you ever get into a fight with your clients? What if you horrendously disagree with them? What if they insist on painting a wall aubergine? (laughs) <laughs> Almost always, they just say this never happens. The clients may be strong willed in other ways, but. Um, well, they're, they're
2: deferring to the designer who they've hired. Yes. So, Kelly Hoppen and Nikki Haslam, two of the designers who you mentioned, were the ones on your panel, but they've got quite different tastes.
1: Extremely different. Kelly Hoppen has famously been called the queen of cream. She discovered the colour taupe, I think, when she was in her. Which I don't think a, I've even heard of taupe. Taupe is taupe. I think is a grand word for the for beige. Really, right. um, she discovered this color, in I think as a teenager, and has been using it in various shades for years and years for forty years. She uses extremely clean lines. It's glamorous. It's swish. It feels extremely high end. It's very contemporary. By contrast, Nicky Haslam, it's more humorous. It's more eclectic. It's in the best possible way. It's weirder and yeah they they are extremely different to each other so i was expecting this panel for them to disagree wildly about the question of to begin with what is good taste that i would have thought they both would absolutely detest <laughs> each other's taste and may have different views about whether you can buy good taste or not as you will hear that's not exactly what happened
2: so in this panel we hear the voices of kelly hoppen and nicky haslam the designers also of jane owen The FT's house and home editor.
1: And deputy editor of FT Weekend. And as such, an expert on interior design.
2: And they will hear you.
1: Indeed. Before I became food and drink editor, I used to edit architecture and design pages and had a video series called Ministers of the Interior.
2: (laughs) Which people can watch online
5: on YouTube.
1: They can, indeed.
5: (laughs) Go look that up.
1: So here is an edited version of that panel.
4: Definitely there is good and bad taste, but I think that it's all relative. I mean, if you take the analogy of somebody saying to you, I love your taste in music, you're saying that because it's the same music you like. If I walk into a home and I think it has good taste, it's because I like that style. But I know what good taste is.
0: Well, good and bad and just taste exists. Well, yes, but no one would want to buy non-taste, would they? You can buy good taste and you can buy bad taste. and Look, look at all the shops around that have terrible kitsch. I mean, worse than kitsch.
4: But you can buy bad taste because I've been into hotels. I say you can. I say you, can yeah,
0: you can easily buy it.
4: Where but what you paid can't buy
0: that. is taste. How would
1: you know for certain that you've walked into a room that is a great expression
0: of good taste? Well, it would be very expensive furniture and probably the obvious pictures and the French furniture and everything perfect. But that's a negative connotation of good taste, isn't it? No, it's not. It's the ultimate of a good taste. If you think of all those millionaires who... B- b- yes, made, but if you're putting it in inverted home, commas,
1: that means you don't personally approve. Your own wonderful flat in West London is not like
0: that at all, is it? Yeah, but I hope it's not good taste. I hope it's taste. It's a different thing. You can acquire good taste if you go to Couturier and have all your clothes made by Givenchy, you could be the best dressed woman. Then you put yourself in somebody else's hands and good taste, you put yourself in somebody's hands who buys you the best things. Taste is when you look at people, look at things, look at museums, look at objects, listen to music, travel the world and notice the best things and bring them to yourself and use them, perhaps translate them into a different way, making your own, individual taste is what matters, not mass taste.
4: Good taste doesn't have to be expensive.
0: What I call taste is good taste, but it isn't, isn't what's called good taste in quotes. Jane, you've been editing the interiors pages for the past 20 years. Uh, yes, no, six yes. years.
1: Six Thank years. you for um, me. You must have a clear sense of what you think belongs on your pages, which are a supreme expression of taste, and what doesn't belong on your pages.
5: It's so variable, isn't it? And I suppose the other sort of quandary I'm in is that I'm sitting here sort of as me, but sort of as David Tang, because he was originally meant to be on this panel. who's a great um, columnist uh, and wild man who, I'm very sad to say, died on Tuesday. Using my Tang hat, I would say it's vulgarity. That's what it is and yet it's, it's good taste at the same time, and he claimed to be vulgar. So it's very interesting, isn't it? There are all these different labels which seem to be applied almost randomly. You know, maybe it's partly tribal, maybe it's partly to do with history, where you are in history, so that something which looks good or bad taste at one point, you know, moves forward changes. a bit and becomes changes. something something else. Changes changes. So it's it's a moving target, it's impossible. I sit there in, in the, the editor's chair despairing sometimes over the um, spreads of pictures I'm given, which... I think, look perfectly frightful, but I'm told <laughs> this is the latest thing in good taste, or whatever it is, and so you let it roll and, and wonder what the readers are going to make of it, and uh, you're a testing lot, if I may say so.
1: There is a strong consensus among artists that actually good taste is a negative thing. It's It strikes me that maybe good taste is discreet and inhibiting and doesn't allow a full expression of creative talent.
0: Somebody once said to the Queen, What do you think of taste? And she said, I don't think it helps. (laughs) It's such a wonderful (laughs) reply. (laughs) You made the
1: distinction in your wonderful book, which everyone will buy later. I think you say that. Taste is inert. Style is proactive. You're born with style, but you can learn taste. Exactly. So, would you say that style is a, is a more precious gift than taste?
0: Yes, in a sense, but I think one can buy good taste, otherwise, we'd be wasting our time so for a long of time. Be here. <laughs> exactly.
4: <laughs> we have turned it into a business, but it's also a passion. But it is so relative. I think when you're talking about style in it today, what is fashionable has a huge part to play. In what is stylish today or what is good taste, because it changes so much. And we are a, if you look at like white socks and sandals, never in my lifetime was that ever going to be stylish, but it's everywhere. Exactly. Now, I still think that is incredibly unstylish, but that doesn't mean to say that the rest of the world who is following fashion thinks that I'm right. So maybe I'm different to other people. I don't sort of change with the times constantly to be stylish or to have taste. Yeah. I admire everything that Nicky's done. I've known him all my life. He's an extraordinary designer and, and and I've always loved his work. But I wouldn't live in that style. But I would happily stay in a hotel or in your home and love it. It's just a question of what your taste is, but you can still enjoy other people's style. Yeah. Money does not buy good taste, but money can buy you good taste if you go to the right person. So clients
1: approach you and they say, I have terrible taste, please can you save my house? Is, is that how it goes? I
4: don't think anyone has actually ever come to me and said I've got appalling taste. I've told them they've had appalling taste, exactly. but they've never told me. Everybody has their own thought of what is good. I think the flowers are not tasteful. Ooh. I don't. I'm a round of no. applause. No, I don't. But that doesn't mean to say that somebody in here might think that all the flowers down there and here are very beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's not my taste of flowers. OK, well, let me just
5: explain the flowers for a moment. These are by Shane Connolly, who um, is florist to the Queen, Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, and uh, the Duke and Duchess of Cornwall. And he came and did a little thing this morning, a demonstration this morning, and he was really working on the meaning of flowers. So each of these bouquets have, has a particular meaning. And that bouquet is a special one done in tribute to David Tang. Raised me for remembrance, dahlias for good taste... And zinnias for fellowship. And so...
4: Um, Sorry, um, can I just say, what I meant was those down there.
5: Oh, well, it's just his bundles that he he, he left behind. I thought it was the the display. But, I mean, dahlias are very interesting. I mean, I'm a garden designer, and dahlias are a very good example of... uh, Flowers which have changed in their perception of. They were once considered bad taste, whatever hell that is, and they're now considered frightfully good taste. Like a carnation. Yeah, precisely, yeah. like yeah. a carnation. Very All those very birds
0: beautiful. of paradise which people hate. They're called Strelitzia, and they came in with Queen Charlotte of Mecklenburg Strelitz, George III's wife. They were the favourite flower of the court. They were the newest thing. Now people can't bear them.
5: See, and by I the way, it's Dahlia. Dahlia. Dahlia.
0: dahlia. I think it is Dahlia,
1: Jane. Um,
5: Thank you, Earl. The great horticulturist here.
1: Do you think Donald Trump has good taste? No. (laughs) Too much gold?
5: No, but it's just
4: everything about... Let's not go into with Donald Trump at this point, but I mean, you know, even to the point that his jackets are longer than his arms. Donald Trump's style and his taste is all about showing his wealth. That is one of the worst ways, I think. But sort of so
0: was Versailles was just as gilded and glitzy, yes, and you know, it seemed all right then. We've now slightly changed against that kind of yeah, show-off show look. Well, we're going to open it up now. First question now.
2: Sort of listening to you, it seems like you help people discover what their own tastes are. So if I came to you and said, help me, how would you draw out of me the sort of thing
4: environment I'd like to live in and what my taste actually was and fuse it together with your...
1: Kelly, could you answer?
4: Um, well... We would sit down with you and I would ask you a lot of questions about the way you live and your family and meet your partner or your husband or your kids. And I would ask you to go and tear out as many tear sheets of things you love and you hate. Because the one thing I've learned over the years is that so many people will give you a picture of something and say, I love this. And when you actually break it down, it's a door handle or it's part of that. And then I would write a sort of 60 page questionnaire to you asking you questions and the bit that I love is getting into your head and extracting that information and it's a magic I was born with and I just have the ability to do it and it's kind of unraveling and like an onion until you get to the, the piece in the middle where you you feel okay now I know what it is that you want and you go away and you create something fantastic for yourself but it is a conversation it doesn't happen like that and it's a process.
0: It's a very psychic process, true. I mean, you have to know, you sort of have to know what uppers you take or downers, or what colors depress you or what, what makes you laugh, what makes you happy. You have to know everything about the client before you can create the perfect thing for them. If you don't have clients that do that, you're just in a kind of way doing your idea of what you think they want.
6: I worry that we live in an age when good taste is per se. And so if you look at what is popular, tattoos, piercings, ripped jeans, it's almost as if bad taste has become good taste. Do I need to worry about this? <laughs> I think yes, I think you do. Well, I, I'm rather against what
0: you're saying because I, I think tattoos look wonderful, especially when they're all over the body, like, like Mari's. And I quite like ripped jeans and wear them myself. I think Gertrude Stein said, you'll throw it from our dead." One must be modern. It's very important.
2: Does taste change if somebody is in love or heartbroken or happy or sad?
0: Oh, that's a very interesting question.
4: Um, Wow. Um... Maybe the way
0: you I look think, at I think, I think the way I'd do it would be if I was heartbroken or in love. I'd, make, <laughs> I'd do quite a different interior. Paint it all black. Yeah, yeah. paint it all
4: black. Yeah. If you're heartbroken or in love, you have a different, you know, when you're happy it's serotonin, when you're depressed, you're very down. I don't think your surroundings necessarily change when you're like that unless you physically change them. But I don't think your actual home changes unless you physically change it.
0: But do you mean you might change it if you felt unhappy? Oh, I see. Um, I wish they'd do it more. (laughs) It'd be wonderful. Clients who change their mood every few seconds, we make much more money.
4: <laughs> Hopefully your home is designed so that if you are feeling different ways, it's, it kind of moulds around you. Otherwise it would be incredibly costly.
1: Right, well, I think we've almost solved it, don't you think? <laughs> I think the answer is that you can buy it if you choose the right designer. Is that? Would you agree with
4: that? 100%. The naughtiest thing you ever did oh goodness me um I, well I suppose the uh, gosh I, do you know I'm not quite sure well, there must I, well, have been a moment well, nobody right? is nobody's ever perfectly behaved <laughs> are they I mean you know I have to confess when me and my friends sort of used to run through the fields of wheat um, the farmers weren't too pleased
2: about that so inspired by the revelation that we played there While you were on the house and home stage are pontificating about what good taste is and whether you can buy it, Chica, our podcast producer and I were wandering around the festival accosting guests and speakers with a microphone and we were asking them the same question that was put to our Prime Minister and this is what they said. My name is Ruth Rogers. I am the owner and chef of the River Cafe. And the
6: naughtiest thing I've ever done was leave one of my children in a petrol station. Vince Cable. I'm leader of the Liberal Democrats. I think the
1: naughtiest thing I did was about 10, 11 years old. I discovered my dad's air rifle in the cupboard and got together with a friend. And we pretended to be
6: snipers in the Second World War and started aiming at our neighbours' windows and put through quite a lot of them and I finished up down at the police station. My name is Evan Davis, I'm the presenter of the Newsnight programme on the BBC. Uh, Wheat fields are running through my head as we speak and I mean to be absolutely honest there are so many hideously naughty things I've done I'm trying to now think not, what is the naughtiest thing I've ever done, but what is the naughtiest thing I've ever done that I want to talk about publicly? (laughs) To which the answer is, I can't think of one. Um, Yes.
5: My name is Lucy Calloway. I am training to be a maths teacher in a Hackney school. I'm not allowed to do anything naughty in the school because I will get a detention if I do. Oh, I did once send an email to the editor of the FT, taking the piss out of him, and I meant to send it to someone else, but I sent it to the man himself, so that was quite naughty, inadvertently.
6: My name is Peter York, and what I do, I am in part a capitalist tool, and in part a writer. Um, uh,
0: And if I'd done a seriously naughty thing,
6: I wouldn't tell you. This is a really unfair question, because... Basically, we've all done some pretty bad, naughty things that we don't want to admit. And then there are things that we want to admit that make us sound like we're trying to be very tame about ourselves. So hooting at a policeman is, 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 is kind of one that comes to mind. But that's not really naughty enough, is it?
5: I'm Jan Daly. I'm the arts editor of the FT. And I want to stole a car.
2: I stole it at night and I gave it back in the morning. And I don't think the owner ever knew.
6: My name is Ben O'Gray. I'm a poet and novelist. And the naughtiest thing I've ever done is to think one thought in 15 different variations for seven minutes. Um, yeah, very interesting one. I think I would probably just have to say one or two very drunken occasions where I have behaved spectacularly badly as one sometimes does when the restraints of uh, normal social conditioning are pulled off and the drink takes over so I think that would that would be the that would probably be the only thing I can think of right now but let me tell you there's a lot worse than that that I'm not saying
1: I'm David Miller, I'm a professional cyclist, and, oof, I've probably got a very long list of naughty things that I've done. The one I got caught for was doping.
6: Oh my god! Um, well... My name is Simon Sharma, I'm a writer, I've been known to a bit of television. I, I talk a lot for a living, and without question, I, the naughtiest thing i ever done. I went on speech strike when I was six years old, because I was sick of being shown off as a little talker. And my parents panicked and took me around to doctors, and I was just kidding, really, and it went on for six or seven weeks. It's the most horrible thing I've done, and certainly the naughtiest.
5: My name's Harriet Fitch Little. I'm an arts writer for the Financial Times. A couple
2: of years ago I was living in a hot country. I went to a party and there was a swimming pool.
5: It was roped off very late at night. I thought it was really unfair that it was roped off. So I climbed over with another friend and dove into this pool.
2: I came up and it was the most beautiful moment of my life. The water was glistening everything was so beautiful. And then my friend's, my friend's face, it really fell, and it was absolutely covered in blood. And I'd hit my head on the way down and come up <laughs> completely bleeding. And the security guards came, and obviously that's why the pool was raped off. i still got the scar, and I like it because it's a reminder of all the lovely, stupid things that I've done.
0: My name's Jeremy Paxman. I once ran through a field of wheat
2: Tell me the naughtiest thing you've ever done is.
0: Well that's good enough, isn't it? If it's good enough art for our brave and fearless leader who led our country so incompetently into an election, it's good enough for me. If you want another you want something else? It's really naughty. I don't think naughtiness is a really relevant consideration. Naughtiness is somehow defined by others, isn't it? You must just do things that you think are reconcilable with your conscience.
1: So, first of all, I think we have to be very grateful to anyone who answered that truthfully. It was a trap. Well, there are exceptions. I don't think Jeremy Paxman covered himself in glory there, although he might have been sensible by not answering. So, if we just go through some of these, Mm -hmm. I don't think all of them. I mean, Ruth Rogers, that's terrible.
2: No, it's the best. That's
1: a disgrace. I I mean, leaving a child. (laughs) child, I mean, what is she (laughs) thinking? But it was um, the best answer. That's a good answer, but I mean... Vince Cable is is a sniper. I mean, dear Lord, I mean, uh, of all parties to have a sniper in, I mean, that's terrible for the country and for the Lib Dems. Evan Davis Evan Davis um, is
2: buying time, basically I mean,
1: please um, he's, he's managed to, to stall for longer than anyone else gave an answer Three times as long as anyone else gave an answer And inadvertently managed to make him sound like he has quite a serious drink problem um,
2: <laughs> He's also someone who, for a living, puts other people on the spot Yes, exactly. he was by far the worst and least succinct person we've Exactly.
1: I think my gold medal goes to the doping cyclist.
2: That's a genuinely good answer.
1: Since you put everyone on the spot at Mm -hmm. the festival, it's your turn. What is the naughtiest thing you've ever done?
2: (laughs) It is a difficult question to answer on tape.
1: Is the bar quite high? (laughs) Do you Um, you have a career in crime
2: <laughs> not what i'm going to tell you about al i was once expelled <laughs> from a violin course in Cacordi <laughs> for throwing wet paper tissues at the ceiling of the girls lose <laughs> but my mum could not be bothered to drive up to Cacordi to pick us up so we just had to sit in a room so we technically expelled so. how long
1: was this violin was this several weeks <laughs> it
2: was like a week <laughs> And, and which, it was about Wednesday, so. so...
1: At which point... Oh, right, so during Wednesday you decided that the violin was was too much and you would do this... It's essentially like a, a toilet prank, is that right? It,
2: I don't know if anyone has done a, it, but it's, it's almost, the most it's, satisfying thing you can do is to wet paper tissues and throw them at the ceiling and they just make this great splat noise and then they stay there.
1: It's a sort of tame version of a dirty <laughs> protest. <laughs>
2: I mean, it was definitely worth it. I don't regret it. Not for a minute.
1: No, well, that's, that's very naughty. It was um, very naughty. And if that's the naughtiest thing you've ever done, then the FT is very lucky.
2: So, Al, can can you top that?
1: Well, no one can top that. But I do have a thing. What's your thing? I once threw an orange at <laughs> Prince William. <laughs> I didn't actually what hit him. What did you
2: him. do to deserve that?
1: Um, he did nothing. He just happened to be in, in in the same room as me, and I happened to have an orange, and I seized the opportunity to chuck it at him.
2: Did you like get him in the back of the head, like um, that scene in Mrs. Doubtfire where Mrs. Doubtfire throws a grapefruit at Brosman's no, head? No, I, <laughs> I
1: I think I missed him for, by about six feet. <laughs> I think it sort of hit the wall, sort of nearish to him, and I think he might have been vaguely aware that that my that that my orange, my, my, orange my orange flew at him. <laughs> He may not remember it, but I remember it. I mean it was a big deal for me.
2: I guess it's pretty naughty to assault a member of the royal family. So
1: the future king. <laughs> that's like the beginning of the French Revolution, isn't it? But not quite. No, that's maybe like the beginning of the First World War almost. Isn't it? That's <laughs> me bringing down the establishment. It's huge. That's really naughty.
2: Were you were you acting alone?
1: Yes, I was alone. I was a lone uh, <laughs> rebel in this there were other people in the room who may have witnessed the... I don't think it's an assault. I think it's... Incident. I think it's an attack. No, not an incident. No, I think it's It's like, it's like the jackal in Day of the Jackal. I wasn't very good at throwing things. I think that's what saved Prince William and maybe saved me.
2: <laughs> Happy ending for everyone involved.
1: Yes, and he's gone on you know, to be Prince William and, and I've gone on to be me.
2: That's it for this week. Friend of My Youth by Amit Chowdhury is out now. And you can also buy House of Hoppen by Kelly Hoppen and Nikki Haslam, A Designer's Life by Nikki Haslam.
1: Next week, I'll be chatting to the poet, playwright, and performer Inua Ellams.
2: Tell us what you think about Good Taste, Amit Chowdhury or tell us the naughtiest thing you've ever done at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash everything else or email us at everythingelse at ft.com and we will read out the best and most revealing comments on air next week.
1: Please leave us a review or rating on iTunes. It helps other people discover the podcast. And you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen online at ft.com slash everything else.
2: Everything Else is produced by Chica Airs.
1: We've been Grizz and Al.
2: And our music is composed and produced by Fatim.